you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. We're one step Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the June 8th, 2020 Shelter-in-Place Pride Month edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. Hello, I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, Steve Pride revisits the film Tiger Orange for your streaming pleasure. Steve Pride also sits down with Dan Savage, creator of the It Gets Better campaign, and the columnist behind Savage Love, the internationally syndicated relationship and sex advice column. And on Storytellers, I have a phone conversation with somatic sex educator, Court Vox. But first, the honest tea. From the Daily Journal in Tupelo, Mississippi, birthplace of Elvis Presley, djournal.com, June 4th, 2020, reported by Danny MacArthur. That freedom has been taken away for a different reason now. LGBT community members reflect on social impact of COVID-19. As Pride Month celebrates 51 years since the Stonewall Riots, LGBT members in Northeast Mississippi reflect on how quarantine has highlighted the importance of community. Starkville Pride was preparing to celebrate its third Pride when coronavirus in the U.S. began gaining traction in mid-March. The celebration traditionally occurs the third week of March, and the Starkville Pride team had been planning for a year. By March 12th, the team had already planned to delay Pride. For us to be the reason that people came together at a time when that could be very dangerous was against everything that Pride stands for, said President Mike Brazil. It's especially poignant for us because we had to fight so hard to be able to have Pride here in Starkville, and we've had a couple of really strong Prides since then. The impact COVID-19 had on the LGBT social scene in North Mississippi was immediate. As one of the few drag performers in Tupelo, Depression Holiday, known out of drag as Justin Tyler, said drag shows are harder to come by in small towns, so it hits a little harder to lose performance space. Drag in small towns means more hospitality, as drag queens have meet and greets and connect with audience members. She described it as becoming like family and knew several regular attendees who would travel over three to four hours to attend shows. It becomes a sense of community for a lot of these people. They don't have the outlet to live their life and be around people like them except for at these shows. Because Mississippi is not a very inclusive place when it comes to something as delicate as drag. The community doesn't get that LGBTQ outlet and openness to be who they are year-round because we don't have a gay bar. We don't have LGBTQ inclusive places. So when we don't have our show, people lose their outlet of creativity, Holiday said. Our open pride celebrations are still new in Northeast Mississippi, Starkville Pride President Mike Brazil said that they serve as a great way to show how many people in the community support the LGBT community as allies. For Mississippi, 
which is not someplace traditionally known for being socially progressive, that's a really good thing. I think our town is progressive in the best ways, though we still have a huge ways to go. And I think that Starkville pride is one of the forces it serves to at least highlight that change. From KPCW in Heber, Utah, June 4th, 2020, reported by David Boyle. LGBT pride banners back up on Heber's Main Street. Last June, rainbow color banners reading Pride in the Wasatch Back appeared on Heber City, Utah's Main Street. Those banners caused a stir with some citizens voicing opposition and others in support of the banners. Heber Mayor Kellen Potter says she hasn't seen many comments on the Pride banners and most of them have been positive. Heber City's policy for banners has remained the same for the past year. If it's not a commercial business and nothing that's offensive or hate speech, then it would be approved, which is how it happened last year. Since then, the only thing we've changed is we've imposed a fee so that it doesn't require any taxpayer money for the Public Works Department to hang the flags. Potter says in the meantime, the council is considering a new stricter policy on banners that would only allow for events that are city or county sponsored or initiated by the city or county. That would eliminate some of the private citizen groups, such as the pride flags, the veterans flags, and the gingerbread houses at Christmastime cottages for the children. So I don't think this conversation is over, Potter said. I think the hope is to avoid turning Main Street into a battleground, where some people, possibly even from outside the community, try to make a statement. Regardless, Heber City Mayor Kellen Potter feels that the gay pride banners have helped spur useful dialogue in the city. It made a big difference in our community for people who have traditionally been marginalized and felt excluded. And there's been some connections made and really positive things came from it, just like what we're dealing with today. Let's just listen to each other's stories and see if we can have a better understanding and less divisiveness and contention. Be a place where everyone's welcome. I'm hoping that's where we land, but we'll see how it goes. The banners are scheduled to remain on Main Street in Heber, Utah for the rest of June, which is LGBT Pride Month. From Variety.com, June 5th, 2020, reported by Rebecca Davis. China's muddled gay rights code can't derail demand for indie LGBT films. After six decades in limbo, China last week passed its first civil code, a wide-ranging legislative package that defines a number of important citizens' rights. While activists had hoped it would include provisions to legalize gay marriage, particularly as officials acknowledged its inclusion, was one of the most requested revisions during the open public comment period for the draft law. Chinese lawmakers ultimately rejected any rules to do so. China's latest setback highlights the continued need to change hearts and minds in the general public through LGBT stories. Nevertheless, the code's shortcoming hasn't hampered the country's growing demand for the LGBT-themed content among increasingly loud and proud gay communities and the millions of mostly heterosexual female fans of the boys' love genre, homoerotic stories about gay characters. As the Chinese film industry enters a new slump due to the coronavirus, some wonder if a silver lining could be that those laid off or unable to start new projects might turn once more to the indie sector, willing again to consider filmmaking for passion rather than profit. Policies won't change in our current political environment, so the future of LGBT cinema in China will depend on the indie circle and how we can create stories with small budgets but interesting ideas, says Fan Popo, who now lives in Berlin and is one of China's few filmmakers openly focused on LGBT content. If there is a revival of independent films in China, then I believe LGBT films will be a part of it. This is my best hope for Chinese LGBT films. 
Explicitly, LGBT Chinese films have no commercial prospects. They can't screen in local cinemas or formally play in festivals abroad. Unable to attract the financing to foot bigger budgets, they're fated to remain independent DIY affairs. A gritty style that no longer matches the polished art house aesthetic of international festivals, Fan laments. But a lack of supply of LGBT stories by no means signals a lack of demand. It's a bad time for LGBT cinema, but it's also a good time, says Wei Zhougang, a filmmaker and activist who manages the Beijing Queer Film Festival established in 2001. No matter what kind of LGBT film you make right now, people really pay attention because there's not a lot of production and they really need those films. China's thirst for LGBT stories may be most visible to the general public because of the popularity of boys' love, but it's also due to a general shift towards greater acceptance of LGBT citizens, even among gay people themselves. Just a few years ago, it was hard to find anyone who'd agree to even show their face in on-camera interviews, says Wei, but now people have become less and less afraid to show who they are. I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel yet, but we've been in the dark for so long that we know you've got to make yourself glow. Otherwise, there's even less light, says Wei, who now lives in Taiwan. I'm not optimistic, but in this movement, you just have to push. From People.com, June 4th, 2020, reported by Robin Merritt. Queer Eyes' Karamo Brown calls out racism in the LGBTQ community. White privilege still exists. There's a lot of racism that exists in the LGBT community, according to Brown, as he spoke to Reuters at the start of Pride Month and amid ongoing nationwide protests sparked by the death of George Floyd. Floyd, an unarmed black man, was killed while in Minneapolis police custody last week. The things I've seen outside in society, I've only seen perpetuated in the LGBT community, said Brown, who is the only black member of the Fab Five on the Netflix series Queer Eye. Yeah, you might have had a struggle because you're gay, but white privilege still exists. As dating apps like Grindr remove the ethnicity filter to combat racism, Brown noted that many white gay men allegedly didn't react positively. White gay men were like, this is wrong. I should have the right to be like, I don't want blacks. I don't want Asians, Brown said. If you inherently don't understand why that is wrong as a gay person, then you need to check yourself. Growing up as a black man in America with immigrant parents raising two black sons, this is a constant conversation that I've been having. These are constant things that I've seen with my friends and family members being harassed by police, being brutalized by police. Brown has been candid about his experience as a gay man, explaining in 2019 that his relationship with his father was fractured for years after he came out. Growing up, my father was my hero. He called me his champion son. But then, as I started to discover who I am, things changed dramatically. When I was 17, going on 18, I told him that I was gay. Our relationship ended. It split the family apart, and we didn't speak for 10 years, Brown said during an episode of Dancing with the Stars last October, revealing that they had newly mended their relationship. Speaking to reporters after the show, Brown said watching his formerly estranged father interact with his fiancée, Ian Jordan, for the first time was particularly special. It's nice, because the 17-year-old little boy who identified as gay wanted his father to see him and love him and respect him, he said. It took until I was 38 for that to happen, and I'm hopeful that someone else out there can see my father and say to themselves, I haven't been respecting or loving my child because of how they identify, and maybe I can change too. For him to be sitting next to my son, there's generational trauma that's ending right there. But also being next to my fiancé, Brown added, it blows my mind. And that's... The Honest Tea, Tiger Orange, 
is an award-winning and critically acclaimed film with a perfect 100% score on Rotten Tomatoes that Stephen Farber at The Hollywood Reporter called a well-observed character drama. Steve Pride reports. Growing up gay in a small town can be an isolating experience. But growing up gay in a small town with a gay brother, I wonder what that's like. And so does the film Tiger Orange. Do you ever even think about that? Well, of course I do. He really respected you, you know? Respect, right. I could just fit in better. Yeah, you had the pretend girlfriends, you were on the soccer team, and there was me, the drama nerd, getting high in the prop closet. When did you know? When you first got stubble. Come on. For real, I'm not being a creeper. I idolized you. I knew you were different from the other guys. I'm Mark Strano, the writer and actor of Tiger Orange. I am Frankie Valenti, the other actor in Tiger Orange. I'm Wade Gasquey, director of Tiger Orange. It's about two estranged gay brothers who basically have come together after their father has recently passed away. And one brother, the older brother, stayed at home and basically helped dad run the local hardware store in the small town, central California. Younger brother left at 18, never looked back. And now that dad has passed away, younger brother shows up on the doorstep. And it's essentially a movie about the two of them kind of hashing out old stuff. This question is for our star slash screenwriter, Mark. What was the inspiration for the film? My dad actually died when I was young in high school, and I never got to come out to him. And so I kind of imagine this scenario of two gay brothers as sort of two halves of myself, of two different paths of actually telling him uh, and him having a poor reaction, which is sort of what Frankie's character, Todd, went through. And then the Czech character, which is my character, the reaction of knowing but not talking about it, but still being really close. So... That was the spark of that. And I also wanted to write something that was sort of a metaphor for brotherhood of the gay community and two different sides of that. Johnny, tell me about the brother you play. My character is the antithesis of um, Chet. I left home. I was the wild one, wild and crazy, and um, you know, more outgoing and really upfront with my sexuality, almost to a fault. But, you know, much like Mark, I had a lot of similarities in my personal life. My father passed when I was young, didn't know I was gay, knew I was gay, but never really kind of got that proper announcement. And, um, you know, my brother is kind of the opposite of me. He stayed home, not really to care for my father, but there's just a, a lot of similarities. It was very parallel. One thing that struck me watching Tiger Orange was that Todd and Chet's sexuality doesn't seem to be a big deal to the town folk. I wanted to make that point. Another reason why I set it in Central California was that there is a real easiness there to a really rural area. There is a a lot of acceptance. And I wanted Chet's environment actually to be pretty easy in the sense of he's got support there. But sometimes people can't get out of their own head, get out of their own world. I mean, you don't see much of the father in this film, but Obviously, he had some issues, the father did, with both of his sons being gay. And so sometimes that could be enough to rock someone's world. And I know for myself, I come from a small town in New Jersey, though. You know, so we're talking a very liberal state, but it is a small town. And I did have a lot of acceptance. 
But, you know, it was tough with my dad. And like I said, I wonder where he would have taken it if I had come out to him or not. Even just the small conversations that we had, I knew he had issues with that. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. You could be surrounded by a lot of open people, but you may still have your own internal struggles about it. And that's something that Mark and I talked about a lot, actually, yeah. because I feel like I've seen that story a lot of, you know, the not able to come out and just this community around you that's very hostile. Not that that doesn't exist in America still, absolutely, but I feel like we're kind of at this place where we're beyond that a little bit, and I think more common now is where we are is this kind of unspoken policy with a lot of like Chet's character in a small town like this where it's he's gay yeah people kind of know but you don't talk about it that much you know you don't flash it out there you don't throw your pride parade out on the street you just try to blend in and every as long as you don't rock the boat you're cool you know and I feel like that's very much where we are sort of in in terms of our movement I I felt like it, it made the film more modern if we were honest with that idea. This is for Frankie, and slightly off topic. Before Tiger Orange, you were a gay vampire on a show called The Lair, but you're best known for adult films under the stage name Johnny Hazard. How did you get into porn, and why did you leave? I got into porn just pretty much the exact way that this film happened. It just fell on my lap. And I left because the industry just, the money was crap. You know, media in general has changed. There's just not a lot of money in a lot of different things. I mean, I'd like to say that I left because, you know, of this or that, but it was just, it was a business thing. Money just sucked. What's the biggest misconception about you? That I am this, like, hardcore, spit-in-your-face, kick-your-ass kind of guy. It's not entirely false. And what do you do now? You're an actor full-time, or do you do food? No, this is the only thing I've done. That and the lair, this is the, the only acting things that I've done. I'm living in Provincetown right now as a tour guide. And uh, once I get back here in the fall, I'm going to see how this gets played out. I'm going to see what the response has been. I'm going to see how this is going to unfold. And then from there, I'll figure out what happens next. What do you guys want the audience to take away from Tiger Orange? I hope it touches them. It's ultimately a story about family, about brothers. And that's very relatable to me, sort of the stuff we put up with, the stuff that we go through that only our sibling kind of gets or understands that the, the way that we are with our siblings. And also, for me, it was very much the story of these two components of being gay, of, of this idea of wanting to fit in and be a part of a larger community and not have to defend ourselves or prove anything but just be a part of something larger and not have to be gay be the first thing that we are or gay not have to define us and then this other part of us that is loud and proud and wants to put it out there and is not afraid of showing everything so I feel like that is something that as a gay person we all kind of have and it's always this little bit of a a dance uh negotiation that we all go through. So the brothers very much represent two ends of that spectrum to me. So hopefully it lands. I hope that they just enjoy it, that they're entertained. I hope that they have fun with it. I think, you know, there's a lot of fun moments as well. And I want them to, you know, identify with their families. I hope they see things in their 
that are similar to their family, gay or straight. There really isn't a movie out there that kind of showcases the relationship between two gay brothers. And I want people to go, oh, I've never really seen anything like that, and also say, wow, it was done really well. This has been a conversation with Wade Gasquey, Mark Stranow, and Frankie Valenti. Find more information about the film at TigerOrangeMovie.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Then our little dog cabin in the land. Tiger Orange streams free with Amazon Prime Video and can be rented on YouTube, Google Play, Vudu, or iTunes. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Dorothy Arzner, film industry pioneer, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in 1900, Dorothy Arzner grew up surrounded by actors and filmmakers as her father owned a restaurant in Hollywood. Her first job in film was script typist for Paramount Studios and debuted as a director with the 1927 silent film Fashions for Women. The next year, she made history as the first woman to direct a talkie, Manhattan Cocktail. Arzner directed 17 films depicting controversial topics for their day like cross-class relationships and extramarital sex. Her female characters even rebelled against sexism, shocking in 1930s and 40s Hollywood. For over four decades, Arzner lived openly with dancer-choreographer Marion Morgan. But what interested the media more was that Arzner wore mannish attire and worked in a male-dominated profession. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Anna Golden. I'm a little tired of the weary throwaway line that there is no such thing as the gay sensibility. Of course there is such a thing as the gay sensibility. Of course gay men and women think in some fundamental ways differently from straight. It is not just about what we do in bed. It is about the echoes in the culture of who we are or who we aren't. Hi, I'm Clive Barker. Listen to I Am I You. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Dan Savage is an American author, media pundit, journalist, and LGBT community activist. He writes Savage Love, an internationally syndicated relationship and sex advice column. In 2010, Savage and his husband, Terry Miller, began the It Gets Better project to help prevent suicide among LGBT youth. Steve Pride reports. Dan Savage is author of the internationally syndicated relationship and sex column, Savage Love, editorial director of the Seattle weekly newspaper, The Stranger, and a regular contributor to PRI's This American Life. But these days, he's even better known for a message that started a movement. Hi, everybody. It's me, Kathy. Hi, I'm Chris Colfer. Hey, what's up? I'm Jake Shears. Hi, I'm Tim Gunn, and I have a very important message for gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgendered, and questioning youth. And that is, it gets better. It really does. Hi, I'm Thomas Roberts from MSNBC, and I wanted to make this video for anybody out there who needs to know it gets better. I know personally firsthand that it does, and I know this because I understand how hard it is when you're struggling at school or at home, uh, when it seems that you're different and there's no one else out there like you, and no one's gonna understand what's going on in your head. And then if you told them what's really going on, you fear that they wouldn't love you or be your friend anymore. 
And I know it because I went through all of it. Hey guys, I'm Justin Bieber. I just wanted to say there's nothing cool about being a bully. And if you're getting bullied, make sure to tell someone and you know it gets better. And if you're a bystander, make sure to step in and you know help out. I'm Dan Savage. How'd you go from sex advice columnist to our national spokes gay? <laughs> well, there's a lot of people who would object to my describing myself as the spokes gay. Stephen Colbert called me that once. You know, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. I speak for myself, and I speak to gay issues and things I care about. I don't know how I went. You know, it's a mystery to me. I, I write the filthiest sex advice column in the world. I tell a lot of dirty jokes, and I somehow parlayed that into the occasional sort of serious thumb sucker in the New York Times or the occasional, you know, heartfelt piece on This American Life. And uh, it amazes me. You would think, based on some of the things I've said and done and written over the years, that I would be kryptonite to mainstream media, but I think the mainstream has really shifted and uh, swamped me in the process. What inspired you to create the It Gets Better campaign? I was reading last fall about the suicides of Justin Aberg and Billy Lucas and had the same reaction that so many queer adults have when we hear these stories. Like, I wish I could have talked to that kid. I wished I'd had access to that kid and been able to tell him that however bad it was right now, that as a commenter on my blog wrote, addressing Billy Lucas after his death, it gets better, things get better. But a lot of these queer kids, they don't know it, they don't realize it. They don't think, you know, a queer 14-year-old who kills himself is saying that he can't picture a future with enough joy in it to compensate for the pain he's in now. He's also saying that he may know that there are happy, content, safe, loved gay adults out there, but he doesn't know how you get from being the bullied queer kid to that gay adult, that secure, safe, happy gay adult because he hasn't seen it in his own family. You know, a kid who's bullied because of his race, religion, class, goes home to family members, parents of the same race, same religion, same class, who got through exactly what they're getting through and are successful adults. Queer kid goes home to no role models, no examples. And so, you know, reading about Billy Lucas and feeling like I wish I could do something, I wish I could talk to these kids, and feeling I can't talk to these kids, I would never get permission from their parents to talk to them. And the, the kids who are queer who most need to hear from gay adults and get a message of hope from us about our lives and their lives and their futures are least likely to have the kind of parents who would allow them to talk to gay adults. And I was just doing on all this when it occurred to me that in the YouTube era, I didn't need permission from parents anymore to talk to their kids, whether they wanted us to or not. That I could record a video, use my column, use my podcast to encourage other LGBT adults to do the same and just look into a camera and talk to queer kids about our lives, about how we'd been there, the trials we faced in adolescence, the bullying we experienced, and how we got from there to where we are now, and illuminate the path for them, and give them some reassurance that, however bad it is right now, that joy is coming their way, and joy that will more than compensate for what they're suffering. Institutionalized homophobia plays a really big role in how kids feel about themselves. But on the federal level, we're making headway in a couple important areas. What impact will this make in the lives of gay kids? The difference that the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell is going to make in a lot of gay kids' lives is that military service has always been held out as a way for kids who are in bad circumstances, who are in poverty, who don't have a family that can pay for them to go to college, can access those things, can get up and out of poverty, can get an education paid for. And all of that was closed to queer kids. So, you know, they would listen to the pitches, join the military, and you can go to college, and know that that wasn't true for them. 
So that's a very real and immediate and tangible benefit to queer kids in the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. There's a lot of queer kids who now will have that option. I would prefer we lived in a country where people didn't have to join the military to have access to education, but you know, you go to school with the country you have, not the country you'd like to have, to spin a Donald Rumsfeldism in our direction. And when it comes to marriage and other rights, it makes a tremendous psychological difference to know that you are a full and equal citizen. And despite what you may be hearing from your peers or even your family members, the government is on your side, that you are entitled to the same rights and responsibilities and privileges as everyone else. And you are not unequal and you're not sinful and you're not unfit for marriage or unfit for military service or unfit for full civil equality. And that can be a boost. You and your partner were married in Vancouver. How did that change your relationship? I don't think my partner and I's decision to marry really changed our relationship. It affirmed what already existed. It affirmed the facts on the ground. We were married in our hearts. It actually changed the way some people saw our relationship, including our son. It meant a lot to him, even though he was pained by the experience of going to a wedding, going to our wedding, going to our wedding reception, uh, although people at the wedding reception besides Deej didn't know it was a wedding reception. Um, he now looks at his parents and goes, they're married. And it comes up every once in a while. Well, we'll, we'll joke about breaking up or we'll joke about uh, you know, being indifferent to one another. Like Terry and I like, just tease each other about, I couldn't care less about you. And DJ will go, no, no, you guys got married. And like a lot of kids, he really is tapped into that sort of bedrock security that that provides an assurance, you know, not a fail-safe assurance because a lot of couples who marry and have kids get divorced. But it says to him that we're committed to each other and committed to him and committed to being his parents and staying together. You know, he picked out our wedding rings, which I'm wearing right now, which have a skull on them. At a rocker store, we stopped in quickly to pick up some temporary wedding rings, and we're still wearing them seven years later. He picked out these rings that have a skull on them because marriage means you're married till you're dead, till death do you part. And he wanted us, every time we looked at our finger, to remember that Terry and I are not allowed to break up, that the only way we're ever going to not be married is if one of us dies. Well, actually, legally, you can't get divorced in your state. That's right. We're talking to Dan Savage, author of the Relationship and Sex column, Savage Love, editorial director of Seattle's The Stranger, a regular on PRI's This American Life, and creator of the It Gets Better campaign. Dan, what was it like for you as a teenager? I like to say I grew up in a Catholic and religious family. It's sort of two separate and distinct things. It was hard for me as a teenager. I thought about suicide. I wasn't as brutally bullied as my partner was. But I did think about suicide only in that I thought it would be easier for my parents to have a dead kid than a gay kid. That it would be the good Catholic boy, loving son, mama's boy thing to do just to end my life so they didn't have to ever know that they had a gay kid. And so it was hard when, you know, I realized I didn't want to end my life and made up my mind that I was going to have to come out to them. It was hard. You know, for a long time I hid from them. The people I relied on the most and needed the most at the time in my life when I most needed adult input, advice, supervision, support, I couldn't go to. My brother Billy was bullied in the same middle school where I was bullied at the same time. We're very close in age. And he's straight. And he had it worse than I did. He was much more brutally bullied. And I called him when the It Gets Better campaign was launched and was going viral. Just to say, I remember that you had it worse than I did. I remember, don't think I forgot. And he said something really smart, very typically Billy. He said, yeah, I had it worse at school, but at the end of the day, I went home and I had mom and dad and you didn't. 
And that's the difference for bullied queer kids compared to bullied straight kids. As we go home at the end of the day to parents who we're either not out to and so we can't ask for their support or who are also bullying us. And then we're dragged to churches on Sunday where we're bullied from the pulpit. Straight kids who are bullied at school go home to a shoulder to cry on and then aren't dragged to a church on Sunday where they're told that God hates nerds and band geeks. And the isolation for queer kids is worse. What sort of feedback have you had from kids? The response has been overwhelming. We've heard from thousands and thousands of kids who've responded at itgetsbetter.org to us, who've responded at each individual video to the person who posted that video. We've heard from parents thanking us for creating the project because it allowed them to demonstrate to their gay kids that they supported them because they, they sat down at computers to watch these videos together. I've heard from parents who are in emergency rooms with their kids who attempted suicide and they're watching the videos. They're finally talking about their kid's sexuality and watching the videos and they're thanking us. Some of the stories we've heard are heartbreaking and some of them are really elating. You know, we heard from a girl who's being very brutally bullied by her family who watched a bunch of the videos and then they didn't just give her hope for her future, they gave her hope for her family, that her family would come around. Because so many of the videos are by people whose families had the same reaction hers did. When she came out, families reacted very negatively, very hostile, and who in time came around and became very loving and supportive. And so she watched the videos and didn't just think, okay, one day I'll be happy, one day I'll have friends who love and accept me. She watched the videos and thought, one day my parents won't be in the same place they're in right now. One day my parents will be better. And she sort of got hope. I mean, the whole point of the campaign was when we launched it, we you know, quoted Harvey Milk, you gotta give them hope. And we've heard from so many kids who it's done just that, it's given them hope. There's never been a better time than right now to be a gay, lesbian, bi, or trans person in America. There are unfortunate incidents, there are always going to be hate crimes and always going to be jerks. The test is how the culture and society responds when there's been a wrong. Like, how does society respond when someone's discriminated against because of their race or their religion or their sexuality? And increasingly, the society's response uh, when it encounters anti-gay discrimination is lining up with how our society responds when it encounters anti-anything else discrimination. There's unfinished business and uh, DOMA rights for trans people, health care, I think, is a right. There's a lot left to do, but, you know, I just think of my own life. When I came out to my parents when I was a teenager, I wasn't just telling them that I kissed boys and I liked boys. I was also telling them I would never get married. I would never have children. I would have a very marginal career, if I had a career at all. I would never be a Marine. And just in my lifetime, all of that has changed. I am married, I have children, I have a great career, and now I can be a Marine if I wanted to be a Marine. I don't want to be a Marine, but I could be a Marine, and just knowing I could be a Marine makes a difference. The world is changing for gay people. What's next for the It Gets Better campaign? The It Gets Better campaign is now a standalone website at itgetsbetter.org. We've raised tens of thousands of dollars for the Trevor Project, which talks kids off the ledge. GLSEN, which helps improve environments in schools, so we have fewer queer kids crawling out on the ledge. And the ACLU's Lesbian and Gay Bi Trans Youth Project, which doesn't get the credit or support from the gay community that it deserves. They do tremendous work. And moving into the future, what we want to do is maintain the website, catalog and tag all the videos so that you know a trans kid can go to the website and call up all the trans videos and raise enough money to maintain the website and then every year around the beginning of school do some outreach, do some advertising. A lot of kids have found out about the It Gets Better campaign through People magazine and reports on the news and things in the newspaper and stuff on the radio. 
and there's been a lot of talk about it, that chatter is going to die down. And so, you know, there's a kid who's four years old now who's going to be 14 in 10 years who may need to see these videos. We have to make sure that there's enough outreach and enough money for the outreach 10 years from now that that kid can find his way to the website. And kids are coming out at a younger and younger age. I knew, well, think about when you were 12. My son knew he was straight at like 10, 11. You know, my son had to come out to us about being straight. We had told him the odds were 95-ish percent that he would be straight, and we wouldn't be surprised if he was straight. But, you know, there was a moment where he's like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm straight. And nobody's surprised when a, ten, when a 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid knows he's straight. But even gay people are surprised when a kid that young knows he's gay. This has been a conversation with husband, father, author, activist, Dan Savage. For more information online, check out itgetsbetter.org. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. I know you're lonely, but please know that you're not The only kid out there who's been in that spot My friends and I made it through, and we're doing fine It gets better, I swear It gets better, but you've got to stick around and make it there It's hard to stand on your own, but you're stronger than you know It gets better, it gets better I swear If you have friends and family who are true And stand by you through the pain Let them be your shelter From the rain But if you feel you need to hide To come out the other side Well that's okay too Whatever gets you through Cause it gets better, I swear It gets better, but you've gotta stick around and make it there It's hard to stand on your own But you're stronger than you know It gets better, it gets better, I swear It gets better, it gets better, I swear the It Gets Better Project continues today as a nonprofit organization with a mission to uplift, empower, and connect lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer youth around the globe. Growing up isn't easy, especially when you are trying to affirm and assert your sexual orientation and or gender identity. It can be a challenging and isolating process, but the good news is no one has to do it alone. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break. The Secret in a Time Capsule, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. On April 22, 1979, a time capsule was unearthed at San Francisco's Washington Square Park. Inside, among various items like buttons, a dress catalog, and a fork, was a travel booklet titled Great Geysers of California and How to Reach Them. On its flyleaf in old-fashioned handwriting was this message. If this little book should see the light after its 100 years of entombment, I would like its readers to know that the author was a lover of her own sex and devoted the best years of her life in striving for the political equal and social and moral elevation of women. It had been written 100 years earlier, in May of 1879, by Laura DeForest Gordon, pioneering feminist, lawyer, journalist, editor, and yes, the writer of a travel guide on geysers. 
The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Pam Matthews. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our next guest is Court Fox, who is a sex and intimacy consultant, somatic sex educator, sacred intimate, surrogate partner intern, practitioner, and founder of The Body Vox. Through The Body Vox, Court offers one-on-one coaching, workshops, and retreats. He is a guide and resource to all individuals of all bodies and orientations, including people in relationships and groups who are ready to find healing within the expansive possibilities of embodied pleasure and finding a more truthful expression of self. Welcome to the show, Court. Hello, how are you? You have had quite a journey. Court Vox has had other vocations prior to the work that you're doing right now as a somatic sex educator. I worked in corporate entertainment and digital media and marketing for many years. I worked for companies like Yahoo and Maker Studios, which was acquired by Disney. And then I worked as a president for an e-commerce company, most recently, really working in digital media and marketing, and really have been transitioning over the last couple of years to move into being a sex educator full-time and really have no regrets. Don't want to look back to that corporate life. So how is this coronavirus pandemic affecting the work that you do right now, and how have you adjusted? I prefer to meet clients face-to-face and one-on-one. It's very intimate work that I do and that I coach people through. Even before this all happened, I do have clients that I see remotely. So I have a client in New York and one in Austin, Texas. The capacity that I'm able to see people online is different. But there still is a great breadth of work that we can do and what I can facilitate online. It's just different. Obviously, touch is not a part of that. But I can facilitate touch-based exercises with that person touching themselves, body-based exercises that they can do on their own or with a partner of their choice. You know, it's not like the work has stopped, but it definitely is different when I work with clients online. Right now, what I'm focusing on is creating some online learning tools that people who can't come to work with me can download and do on their own or work with their own partner on. How do you identify within the LGBT plus community? Probably if you'd asked me that question a year ago, I would say I'm a gay man. And I think if you asked me that question now, I would just say I'm sexual. I think as I have opened my erotic capacity and my learning of erotic potential and who I am as an erotic human, my openness to all bodies and orientations just in my own personal life has definitely opened. And I would consider myself to be more queer and definitely pansexual. We all have, to some varying degree, sex and intimacy issues. Now you add the pandemic into the situation. Are you seeing an increase in terms of the issues that people are having, the anxieties that people are having? It definitely amplified the need for human connection and the need for human touch. And this idea that we can do it on our own is great. And I definitely facilitate self-touch and self-pleasuring, which is a really, really important part of embodiment. It's a piece of it. 
we are social creatures. It only makes sense that people are skin hungry at the moment for touch and for connection. I think in many ways, this might be a great launching pad for a new intimacy. You know, I think hookup culture has definitely taken a big chunk of our real estate in the last 10 years with the invention of apps like Grindr and Scruff. And I think people are kind of waning from it. And it's not that they're going to go away. I think people's approach to them is changing. And especially with this time, it's looking at individuals and looking at people that you are sharing erotic energy with in a different way seeing them as intimate connections, rather. And that's a shift in intention, not a shift in in action. That is definitely something that I see happening just among my own community and, and with clients as well. We talked about a lot of issues prior to today, and one of them that really stuck out to me is the issue with body shaming. That's not something that's just unique to gay or queer culture. You see that everywhere no matter what your sexuality or gender identification is. So let's talk a little bit about how you deal with that. I consider myself to be body proud. I love my body and I work hard to keep it at its physical capacity that it's at. When I look at myself in the mirror, I definitely say, wow, this is a beautiful body. And there's still little whispers that come up and say, oh, you could be a little bit tighter here if you just got down to that 10% body fat. I don't know that those necessarily go away. So I think when often we talk about body image and we talk about body love and all these things, it's like you can love your body and you can have this positive body image and still have things that you'd like to change. Even in my community of sex educators, you know, it's this acknowledgement that it's a practice. Loving your body, loving yourself, it's a practice. It's a daily affirmation, and it's not something that just happens necessarily. I wrote something on my Instagram about body talk, and I asked my audience to name their favorite body part of theirs and to name the least favorite body part of theirs and then to really put one hand on the favorite part and the other hand on their least favorite part. Have an internal dialogue with those body parts. And it sounds silly, but when you start to listen to what you love about, say, my favorite body part is my chest and my least is my butt, what conversations start to arise just from sitting with that question? And what was interesting was the responses back from my audience. Not a lot of people named their favorite body part. And most people that answered named something that they didn't like about themselves. And in my confession of sharing that my chest was my favorite and my butt was my least favorite, no one, and I mean no one, picked up on the fact that I mentioned my chest as my favorite. No one said, you're right, your chest is beautiful. Thank you for sharing about your chest. Instead, they said, why don't you like your butt? Your butt's amazing. Kind of like globbing on to this negative piece about my body. And what's interesting about our human response to folks talking about themselves in a quote-unquote negative way, what if the next time someone shared with you about the feelings about their body or, or anything really, it had kind of a, a negative spin on it, you merely just said, thank you for sharing that with me. I really appreciate that. You're listening to my interview with Court Vox, a sex and intimacy consultant. You can have 500 great reviews on Yelp, for instance, right? You get that mm -hmm. one negative review and what do people harp on? But it's all about perception. And there's something to that. In somatic sex education, we call it yumming someone's yuck. 
So it's like someone's having this kind of yucky experience and we go, oh, I'm not comfortable with you having this yucky experience and I need to find a way to soothe it or to fix it. Instead of just acknowledging that that person is having an experience, I look at energy a little bit differently than a lot of people. I I look at like a, a negative comment the same way I look at a positive comment in that Someone has really taken time out of their day and given me that piece of energy that they have. So whether they're spewing, you know, nasty words or words of praise, they really are using their energy to give to me. And I accept it as energy that I will transform into something else. Can you explain a little bit more what somatic sex educator means? What does that encompass? Somatic means of the body. A lot of people go to a sex therapist talk about sex issues, and that is psychotherapists are legally only allowed to talk in those forums. And the type of work that I do is very touch-based, very body-based. So we are moving. The tenets of my practice is really breath, movement, sound, and voice, really utilizing all of those things to work through the body. And exercises can range anywhere from touching specific objects to hands, which is more like sensate focus exercises, all the way to like sensual massage that incorporates Taoist breath work, as well as movement. When I give body work on a massage table, it sometimes can look more like table dancing. It's not passive massage. I'm not giving body work and the person is just laying there. I'm really asking them to stay present with their breath and also move. This practice really asks you to stay present in the room. And if your mind does start to wander, to move your body to get back into the presence of the space you're in. So it's a very active receiving type of body work. I work a lot with consent and boundaries. I do a lot of exercises that involve writing and contemplation. I work with clients that come to me that really would like to learn more about how to surrender, clients that are looking to work through erectile dysfunction or sex and performance anxiety is a big one. And a lot of times I would say erectile dysfunction is more rooted in performance anxiety than actual erectile dysfunction, which is great news for everyone listening. Erectile dysfunction is not as common as people would like you to believe. This conversation that we're having, for some, it may still be one of those clutch your pearls kind of conversations because we're talking about sex. You're coming into the scene, Court Fox, and you're going beyond just the conversation to actually having physical contact. I'm just curious as to what are some of the misconceptions that people may have going into the kind of work that you're doing. Because I am pretty present on Instagram, I am very body proud and there are pictures of me naked and pictures of me in Speedos and things like that. It oftentimes gives people the license they feel to come at me in a way that sexualize and fetishize me in ways that they do. And I realize that that's kind of like par for the course and I accept that and it also gets a little tiresome sometimes too. I would say it comes down to the intention of people and I can kind of read that pretty well from the beginning. If someone is coming to me and they really would like to work through specific issues that they have and there's an altruism to their request, you know, I would love to work with them. I think the common misconception is that we're coming here to have sex. But the message that you're putting out in terms of the work that you're doing is very clear. It's tied to intimacy. It's tied to the wants and needs and desires that we have to connect with others around us in an intimate way. I don't want to dissuade people from seeking sex work either. I think there's a lot of value in sex work. And I think there's 
pleasure in healing. And I think a lot of times as Americans, we're ashamed of our own pleasure. And so sometimes just the act of being in pleasure is enough to move the body into a place of healing. How many times growing up did you hear from someone that, you know, pleasure is selfish? Why would you do that? That's selfish. Why would you take that last piece of cake? Or why would you take that from your brother? You're being selfish. Why would you want for yourself? Why would you seek pleasure for yourself? So there's this kind of like ongoing message that we've been fed our whole lives. And to unravel that, even get to a place where you're like, no, I want this for me. I want to take something for myself. There's a lot of power in that. There's a lot of power in accepting that you're worthy of pleasure. And then there's a lot of power in like going out and finding it and taking it for yourself, whatever that looks like. In many ways, even though it's 2020, we're still very much a scarlet letter society when it comes to sex. Violence is okay, but a sensual, sexy scene, we can't let our kids see that. Of course not. Well, speaking of sexual, sexy scenes, is porn dumbing down your human connection? Joseph Kramer, who's a pioneer in, in sexological body work, his kind of newest work is porn yoga, like watching porn in a more mindful way. So you might start self-pleasuring and using porn as like a conduit to get there. And then you might put the screen away where you cannot see it, but you can still hear the audio. And then you might, you know, at some point bring it back to watch again. And then at some point you might turn it all off and continue on with your self-pleasuring practice. And that's really like using porn in a more mindful way. If it gets to the point where you are using porn for all of your self-pleasuring and you can't facilitate your own fantasies, there could be something there that you could potentially want to look at. Personally, when I watch too much porn, it definitely dummies down my connection that I have physically with partners, images that have been scripted and fed to me for my own arousal. Do you put a time constraint on the amount of time? Do you recommend that, that people watch porn? Look, there are some countries, especially for queer identified people, where porn is like their only sexual outlet. And so I just want to say to the porn community and sex worker community, like there needs to be a level of gratitude for those people, not just in our community here in Los Angeles and in the United States, but globally. Those people are literally keeping people who don't have other outlets sexually active in ways that they would not be able to. In general, when I am doing masturbation coaching or mindful erotic practice coaching, as another way of framing it, is I ask people to set aside amount of time. You know, if you're going to masturbate, what would it look like to set aside an hour of your day or 30 minutes, 20 minutes? If you're used to sitting down and jacking off for 10 minutes and really just focusing on getting off, what would the practice look like to pull back and Start with touching your feet and bringing in specific sensation toys and really using oil to massage your body. And, and it's really like begging the question of like, if you were bringing someone else into the picture, would you spend nine minutes or 10 minutes or would you give them 30 or an hour? And how would you take up that time? Kind of like giving to yourself what you would give to others. Tell us how we can find you on social media. I'm at court. C-O-U-R-T, Vox, V as in Veronica, O-X, Port Vox. And I'm also The Body Vox on Instagram. And you can message me on my website as well, www.thebodyvox.com. You've been listening to Storytellers. What's your story? Well, that's the end of our show. 
Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. You can also listen to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Stitcher, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night and stay well. I have seen it in my dreams night and day. The only constant thing in life is that there's change. While I grow the garbage, I hope slips away. I was raised a straight boy, but I'm not today. I was raised a straight boy, but I'm not today. Jesse happy.